Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between using business data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Jason. And I'm your co-host, Rutger. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. We've got a very special guest for episode two, and she goes by the name of Christine Osazua. We're about showcasing great talent working on the forefront of music and data, and Christine definitely fits that bill. An American now based in London, she's currently a senior data analyst for a major label in charge of the Europe, Middle East, and Africa regions. Before that, Christine worked her way up the ranks to become the head of insights and data analytics at another major label, this time based in Stockholm. Christine earned her bachelor's in music business and journalism at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, her MBA from Loyola College in Maryland, and holds certificate certificates in data science, predictive analytics, and information technology. Lest you think Christine is just about business and numbers, she's also product managed in the online ticketing space, served on music street teams, and was president of a local music magazine in the Baltimore area. Our talk with Christine runs about 45 minutes. It touches upon her thoughts on how TikTok isn't just for the kids, and how she's not a fan of AI making new music, and also clarifying your goals with music data and more. The audio gets a little wonky here and there because it was a web-based recording, but please do personalize severe because we think there's a lot of great stuff here to chew on. Rutger, please roll the disclaimer. Sure. Any opinions or views expressed by our guest or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise. Christine, hello. Hi there. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Busy day, but I'm pretty good. Awesome, awesome. I'm really uh, excited. Uh, we are too. Uh, you are our first official guest. But uh, we're really, really happy to talk to you, uh, just for the listeners. Uh, so Christine is, she talked at a panel recently uh, with one of our own Chartmetric folk, Chaz Jenkins, at a Music Ally event called Sandbox Summit. Uh, this was in the UK, uh, where Christine is based. Um, so that's kind of how we came, up, came across you and um, the work that you do. But could you just give us a quick intro on kind of how you came into music business and kind of where your roads kind of led you to where you are today? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So um, I started in the music industry when I was about 14 years old. I loved local music, lots of local rock bands in the Baltimore area back in the States. Um, and so I started working for I started you know running street teams. Um, from there, I started booking shows. Um, then I started a promotions company, booking shows. Um, I ran a magazine. Um, it was actually Prince. This was 2000 and gosh 2004 so print was actually kind of a novel thing even then but i ran a print magazine for several years um all about the music industry i started off with just myself and by the time i was done i had a staff of 12 people all across the east coast of the states basically um and that's kind of how i got my start and then i decided to go to school for music business um that did major didn't actually exist in my school or anywhere really um in the in maryland so i got the opportunity to make it myself, which is really cool. So my um, official degree title is Music Entrepreneurship and Journalism. Um, and then for my senior thesis, I made a documentary about the music industry and how social media has changed the way fans and artists interact with one another. Uh, yeah, that was kind of my, my humble beginnings. Awesome. So on your Twitter bio, it says 
don't you remember when you were young and you wanted to set the world on fire? So that's a 2010 lyric from Florida punk rock band Against Me. And we we're wondering if you could tell us about it and what it means to you. Yeah, what's funny is um, the opposite of it is uh, Do You Remember is um, was redone by Rise Against also so i really like the dichotomy of those two things because rise against was a response against me in that quote because the idea was and against me's quote uh, don't you remember it was it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek because the idea is people used to be so passionate people used to be so so fiery um and then they got old basically and when everyone gets old and all of a sudden they start losing that fire um so i really i've always loved that quote because I still think I'm pretty young, but I always had this idea of there's a lot to do, there's a lot we can do, there's a lot we can change. And really like, really like the idea of A, trying to accomplish all as much as possible, trying to do big things, and B, not becoming so jaded and not becoming so you know complacent to the way things are. Uh, th this is actually something I'm super interested in talking to you about, Christine, is like, so you're currently at a major label. Uh, you're an American mm -hmm. uh, based in the UK currently, and you're working for a major label, but you mm -hmm. have this very kind of grassroots background. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you were in charge of a zine. I don't know if I can call it a zine, but I am familiar with the zine world. And uh, it was called Scene Trash, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. So uh, yeah. I, I really love this, how like in the course of your career, you've had this like very like, you know, F the man, like, I, like I'm all about the <laughs> DIY, you know, aesthetic. Um, but at the same time, like you also, are working at this huge, uh, you know, company with amazing resources and and this you know yeah. gigantic roster and applying your kind of data analysis skills there. I was just really curious, like, how do you kind of see those two worlds and you know if they're connected at all, and if so, how and you know how does dare I even say data play a world in, in both of them? <laughs> Yeah, um, so I always joke that I went to business school, but I don't want to hang out with people who went to business school. Um, obviously, that's how I end up at a major label. Uh, I like to bridge the gap, basically. Um, I'm going to take a step back. So basically, like I mentioned, my undergrad degree was in music business, and um, then I did my MBA in marketing, and then I did my master's in data science. As I was going through this process, a lot of people would say, what do those three things have to do with one another? Um, I started this back in what, 20, 2007. So in 2007, when I was kind of carving out this path for myself, there was a lot of questions like, I don't understand what, what these, how these things are related, basically. And for me, it always kind of made perfect sense. Basically, I was creating a job for myself that didn't exist when I started it. So as I went through the process um, of understanding the music industry, and then I went through the process of understanding marketing at a deep level, not just marketing. I came from a street marketing background. I worked for as a consultant, um, like a contractor for Atlantic Records back in like 2010. Um, but I came from that background. But I wanted to understand how do companies work? You know, how do you figure out how much a company is worth? How do you figure out how to you know run a company? And then I wanted to understand there was data behind that, a lot of data behind that from financial, commercial, business, dev, marketing. There was data everywhere. Um, and I, may, I wanted to understand basically how all of that data went into play with marketing and how that data went into play with music. But 
all of those things kind of tied together perfectly for me and they wouldn't have worked in, in of themselves. I think I, as a, as a person working in the music industry, I am kind of the sum of my parts. Um, and those three areas are something that I've always been really passionate about. So when it comes to working for a major label, um, for me, the data actually comes to it in a really big way because at a major label, we have a lot of data. We get terabytes of data a day in the same way that we wouldn't add an indie label, for example. So it really gives a lot of opportunity to do some groundbreaking work in the music industry. Um, I find a lot of times the music industry can be a little behind a lot of other industries. Um, so for me, being able to be at the cutting edge of the music industry with data was something that was really important and something I foresaw much earlier than a lot of people did, I think. And so that's kind of how I ended up in a situation now where I have a job that didn't actually exist 10 years ago, not in any real capacity. Um, and I have kind of been able to pioneer a role in an area where we're using data to power the music industry. And has has globalism or your sort of focus on, you know, covering Europe, Middle East and Africa, has that always been a part of your focus? Uh, so not really. I never, I don't think I ever saw myself necessarily like being all over the world wasn't necessarily my first priority. I've, I don't think I ever thought that big when I was a kid. I just wanted to like conquer the East Coast. Um, and so as uh, as the world became more open to me and as things grew, I went, wanted, wanted to get to Europe and I wanted to get to a larger role and see more of the world and understand more of the world and see the nuances. And it's actually come in handy in a way that I didn't actually foresee. I like to think that I'm pretty... I'm pretty perceptive at like what's coming up next, but I didn't really foresee how important my time in Sweden would be um, to influence my time now, because I understand nuances of the Nordics. I understand that the Nordics are ahead of the other of other countries in a lot of ways technologically. I understand the nuances of other countries because of it. Um, I also got to see patterns. So it's funny because in my previous role, I, I was in the Nordics, but I would see certain countries come to me and you can see how certain countries were getting on the data train, you know, a few months after the next one and a few months after the next one, a few months after the next one. So it's really interesting to kind of see like the trajectory of, oh, this country is about two years behind where Sweden is. This country is about four years. This one's about five years because mm. streaming came, streaming as we know it now came to Sweden first. So having that be the front runner and things and then seeing how every other market um, not necessarily lags behind, but joins in, has been really interesting to now be in a role where I'm at EMEA and I'm having conversations with, you know, labels in Nigeria. And we're talking about, hey, here's what the, here, here are the key players here. How do we how do we build up this market in the way with the idea that we want to be as robust as all of the other territories with streaming, with digital in general? So your, your current gig right now at this major label uh it has you uh, as a senior data analyst uh, for Europe, mm -hmm. the Middle East, and Africa. So mm -hmm. just one of those is already a massive territory to even start talking about. So um, I'm just curious, how do you go about organizing your data analysis work for the music business uh, kind of region by region? Like, how do you approach them? Because there's such massively different regions with different cultures and multiple cultures within each region, of course, and multiple languages and kind of different connections to music itself. How do you kind of mm -hmm. approach uh, each of those regions when it comes to kind of your day-to-day -day work? 
Yeah, so I think one issue that is very prevalent as we start moving towards streaming, I mean, it's always really been an issue with the music industry is even when I say my remit is EMEA, there's a lot of focus on that E, um, less focus on that MEA. Right. Because the E um, is where the revenue comes from. Yep. The more paid subscribers you have on Spotify, the more paid subscribers you have on Apple um, in this day and age, that's where the money is coming from. So there's a lot of focus on E and less focus on MEA. Um, so the first approach was when I was in Sweden, actually, I think I got a, a very big crash course on the rest of the world. Um, coming from the U.S., I lived in the U.S. almost all of my life. So everything was very, very much U.S. focused. So when I moved over to Sweden, I started to understand the rest of Europe because the Swedes weren't just listening to Swedish music. They were just listening to American music. They were listening to Norwegian music and German music and Finnish music and anything else that came in. So I started to get like a crash course in all these different areas. So I wouldn't say I'm an expert in any of these territories by far, um, but I have a good understanding of, oh, this is how the German market works. This is Schlager music, for example, Schlager. and getting an understanding of how these, yeah, right? Getting an understanding of how these things work is something that I didn't even know I needed to know. Um, and now it's helping me form and make decisions, even things like UK grime. That's not a thing in America, but helping me understand, okay, how do these people that like this music differ or even better overlap with the people that like, you know, U.S. hip hop or U.S. SoundCloud rap or whatever that might be. So that's the Europe part. So getting that education in Sweden helped me kind of understand the markets. And so when I'm talking with the markets, I have a feel for, okay, I know that Deezer is, is your thing here. How much are we focusing on Amazon? When is Amazon coming to your market? Things like that. And I have the context of my experiences in the U.S. and my experiences in Sweden to help me in, in the Europe scheme of things, basically. A lot of the countries in Europe are pretty advanced or getting there, so it's a lot easier because people are bringing analysts on board in those territories, so I can work and collaborate directly with the analysts in those territories pretty easily to like, work on projects and you know, make some cool things happen. Now, when it comes to the MEA part of things, that's where things get more complicated, but it's really exciting um, because you kind of don't know what's going to happen. Um, basically, at any point in time, a new player will come into the market, a new um, DSP or like a, a, um, a new subscription service or streaming service will come into the market that could completely radically change the way the industry works, the way people consume music, the way people get their music onto, you know, onto those platforms. So it's a really interesting, exciting time. So down in Nigeria, um, there's Boomplay. Um, Boomplay is kind of in its infancy in a lot of ways. So, you know, I'm really excited to kind of see what that looks like. I want to know how these listeners differ from the listeners in Europe. Um, if Spotify gets down there or, you know, if another streaming service progresses, what type of opportunities they can give us. The thing about the Middle East and Africa is there's a lot of people down there. Lots and lots of people. A lot of people that are very mobile, um, mobile savvy digital natives down there. Mm -hmm. So if we can crack the, you know, crack the case down there and understand what's going on in these regions, there is a lot of money to be made. So I worry that people can sometimes be a little short sighted and think, oh yeah, Europe, money, got it, um, without understanding that third world countries or whatever we want to call them eventually can become first world countries and they're still or everyone loves music regardless of what country they're living in so if you're able to you're able to get those fans get those listeners get those ears early on um you have a very big added advantage i think about um back when i was in school i don't know if they did this in europe but in the states apple gave about computers 
like Mac computers in schools all over the US. This was the longest con in the world because 20 years later, everyone's running around paying a thousand dollars for MacBooks. Um, and it's an amazing thing because they didn't try to get, get me to buy anything when I was seven. Um, but when I was 27, all I saw were MacBook ads and everyone had this familiarity. So if we are able to, as a, as a label or as musicians or as artists, as managers, able to get into these territories and get our, you know, our Anglo acts there, get our other African or other Middle Eastern acts there, we're able to cultivate a fan base that, it will be used to seeing us or hearing us on platforms and streaming services and that we can take with us regardless of what new DSP comes out and, or what new, you know, platform or plan comes out basically. Yeah. Um, so on the topic of DSPs, uh, I, I wanted to get your take on, um, ByteDance. So TikTok is like the flavor of the TikTok. past few months, like hundred percent. And, you know, of course, you know, if, if you've been paying attention to the music business, you know, the listeners will know that, you know, they've been having rumors of us, their own streaming service about to go online, um, yeah. everywhere. I mean, outside of uh, mainland China, of course. And, uh, you know, at, from, I think I, there was like a TechCrunch article, I want to say that maybe I read something about the idea that it's uh, involving a lot more kind of social network activities. Uh, Christine, you're familiar with uh, Engami, I'm sure, in the Middle East, correct? Um, yep. And the only reason I know about it is because I wrote a paper on it once in grad school. But essentially, <laughs> like, I was really impressed with uh, what they had to offer because, um, you know, besides just the music and having, you know, tons of catalog available, they had all these cool features where you could sing along, do karaoke, do a, record a clip from what I remember, and then send it to a friend who was also on Angami, and, you know, they could, like, you know, mm -hmm. react off of it. Um, it seemed like a really, really fun, interactive kind of DSP. And I just want to, mm -hmm. and, you know, share whatever you want to share that you're comfortable with, Christine. But, like, I'm just kind of curious, how do you feel about the, that, that, that kind of, like, interplay between kind of social networks and music streaming and, you know, how different populations in the world kind of see that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. I think it's really interesting. Um, starting with TikTok, one thing I find really interesting is maybe two years ago, I was um, back in my previous role in Sweden, and there was some market research done about who uses TikTok. And there was interviews with like, you know, 15 year olds, maybe 17 year olds, and they just asked them, like, hey, do you use TikTok? And they're all like, oh no, those are that's for kids. Well, my little sister uses that. My little brother uses that. I would never use TikTok. And I think a lot of people kind of wrote TikTok off as like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the kids platform. And this kind of goes back to my previous um, my previous statement about Apple. Sometimes people are really short sighted about the long con there. Because if you had ignored the fact that the 17-year-olds thought that TikTok was for kids and looked at all the 12-year-olds using TikTok, you would have first seen what's happening now two, three years later, where all these 15-year-olds are... Now all these 15-year-olds are ruling the world. You would have right. seen Lil Nas X coming if you had understood that TikTok was, yeah, where all the kids were but you know who likes to repeat listen you know who becomes fanatic about artists you know who is willing to go through the, the emotions of signing up for contests and you know trying to get meet and greets those are those young kids that were kind of written off because only little kids are on tiktok so i really find it fascinating now to see everyone's side of like scrambling a bit like oh yeah what are we doing about tiktok what's up with tiktok when everyone knew about tiktok everyone kind of saw tiktok and would just kind of dismiss TikTok, I feel like. Um, 
I always had this idea that you should treat every new DSP like it's going to be the next Spotify. Mm. And I mean that in a lot of ways. So that means when the contracts are negotiated, you should negotiate for as much data as you can, as early as you can. When the terms are negotiated, you should negotiate terms that will be favorable to your artists as early as you can. Because right now you're like, oh, they only have a couple of listeners here and there. Oh, it's only for this audience. Oh, it's only in Malaysia or oh, whatever. But just because it's only in one place, when Spotify, sorry, Spotify was just in Sweden. Sweden has a population of 10 million people. If you dismissed Spotify as oh it only has it only has ten million people, then you run into a situation five years down the line where you didn't negotiate the right deal, you didn't get the right data, you didn't negotiate all the things that would have been really good in hindsight to have gotten. So when I think about TikTok, I just think about there was a lot of opportunity there. I think we've I think the music industry understands this, has embraced it, but there was opportunity even earlier, and I think in a lot of ways it was kind of dismissed as just like a kids platform yeah um and then regards to all the other like you know the smaller dsps and the idea of social being integrated in there i think it's really interesting i i'm very curious to see how or if it can work in a anglo market because like the last time we really have a good example of that at a mass scale is probably myspace and that was what Ooh, I remember. My I'm dating myself if I try to think about that. If we no, think about I, everyone had, <laughs> but it was seamlessly integrated into the entire platform. You had the music yeah. on your page. You had your top eight, and your top eight could have artists, influencers, bands, your friends, whoever you wanted in there. And it was really seamlessly integrated. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it also failed spectacularly. So I'm very curious to see if those social sites can translate over to the Anglo markets. I know and I, I know the work that you guys have done with um, Trigger Cities looking at the way the, especially like the Asian markets, how they, how those people use social media in a completely different way um, where it's literally an actual social site in which you get all your information, you interact with your friends, you share things your friends are posting. Um, it feeds on itself in a really interesting way and in in not the same way that like Facebook works where it's brands there and artists there. You're used to seeing a lot of basically advertising regardless of if it's actually paid or organic yeah. um, on these other social network sites. It's a lot more of a organic feel where everything is just, this is my friend that I'm communicating with using this channel, using this platform. If you think about it, that's kind of what TikTok is. Um, and it's still, of course, you know, a younger audience, but it'll be interesting to see if, for instance, I know Facebook is trying to get, is rebranding and talking more about community and bringing people together. It'll be very interesting to see if someone's able to pull off, pull us off this magic of bringing, everyone loves music, right? It'll be interesting to see if anyone can pull off bringing music to people and seamlessly integrating it into the social media that they're already using at a mass scale. Um, of course, it's very niche now but i'm really interested to see if you know if my my mother-in-law can you know ends up on tiktok one day or ends up on whatever the next tiktok is that comes over from india that i don't even know about yet a funny side note actually um my friends are friends with uh myspace tom oh amazing <laughs> yeah and he's just chilling in hawaii and he's a photographer filthy wretch <laughs> yeah living his as best life yeah. <laughs> as he does um, so, I mean, so you mentioned Trigger Cities, uh, Christine, and I wanted to touch mm-hmm. on that a little bit. So uh, this this Music Ally, which is an amazing uh, kind of music knowledge uh, company based in uh, the UK, uh, where you're based, 
Um, they have this yearly uh, event called Sandbox Summit. Um, it happens in London, and it's kind of a gathering of um, some of the brightest minds in the business, and they talk about kind of like the latest issues um, in the industry. And so uh, Chaz Jenkins, he's our chief commercial officer. When I say us, uh, Chartmetrics, uh, he's also based in Brighton um, in the UK and had nothing but glorious things to say about you, Christine. Uh, so on this panel, it was called Trigger Cities, and it's uh, based off this idea of, you know, this, there are cities in Latin America and Southeast Asia, especially where uh, there is such crazy streaming consumption um, from several different um, streaming platforms that it's starting to shape the way taste and taste making is kind of done in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read the kind of, you know, the sum up of the panel that you were on with Chaz. And for one part, you talked about the nuances of a city and how to market to them effectively. Uh, this idea that, you know, can a, an, an artist who's, you know, DIY and even a label with, you know, multiple marketing teams in different territories, is it possible even to target you know, all these different markets simultaneously uh, with different languages and preferences and music and, you know, all these different cultural sensitivities, you know, how would one, let's go ahead and just take the uh, perspective of a DIY artist. You know, there's, it's such a yep. big, you know, thing in the past couple of years, you know, oh, who needs, you know, uh, a record contract, you know, I'm going to do this by myself. How do you see that being possible for someone who's just kind of uh, running their own um, artist's career? Yeah, so from my perspective, I think sometimes everyone kind of gets a bit lost in the weeds when it comes to, oh, get more streams, get more streams, get more streams. Mm -hmm. I get it. I understand streams equals money. So I went to business school. I completely get it. However, <laughs> once we take a step back here, I think there a lot of times people are less focused on what your goal is as an artist or your goal is as a company or as a manager or whatever you whatever your role might be but what is your actual goal if you start thinking about what your actual goal is then you can actually start making some solid decisions as to what you want to do next um and you of course get the most streams that's a goal i wouldn't say it's the best goal in the world but it's a goal but when you start thinking about what your goals could be um i work with an artist back in sweden and their goal was to sell out the local arena they were 20 years old they just finished high school. Their friends were still living in Sweden. They wanted to prove to all their friends they could sell out the arena. I was like, cool, let's talk about that. How can we take that that goal? How can we quantify that and scale that out to something that we can actually make happen with actionable goals and actionable steps to get to that point where it's possible for you to sell out that arena? So if you think about it from the Trigger Cities perspective, is the idea of Trigger Cities is that there's certain cities that because of the because of the behavior and the listening habits of those people in those cities, they are influencing the way the DSPs tend to work and tend to prioritize music. That also might help trigger um, placement on playlists, for example. But let's start thinking about that at a logical step. When you, we talked about this, and you said, "How are you going to market to people in Malaysia?" in Japan, in Korea, in Seoul, in Latin America, in the US, in Canada, and in India all at the same time. If you're an indie artist, even if you're a major label artist, that's really, really difficult. So what you have to do is step back and figure out what is your end game? What is your actual goal here? So if you're thinking about playlist placement, start thinking about of those cities, which of those cities tend to trigger playlist placement in the next cities that are important to you, for example. 
if you're a certain type of artist, if you're a rapper, for example, Asia might not be your market to start off with, definitely. So you have to start thinking about what's actually works for me. I really like the idea of taking a study and looking at the principles and the underlying makeup of it and how it was done and then taking that out and then applying it to what you're working on and what your goals are. Because the trigger cities as an overall concept makes a lot of sense. However, it might not make sense for you if you're a certain genre, if you're too small of an artist, if you're too big of an artist, et cetera, et cetera. So you start thinking about what works for you. You might be able to find your own trigger cities because let's say you figure out, oh yeah, you know what? My last single, it totally blew up in Manchester. That's not one of the trigger cities, but if you know for you, that's where you have to focus first. And that's when you end up on the charts and that's when you get the playlist placement and that's when you get the TV spots and that's when you get radio. Why would you go to Malaysia if you know that that's your city? If you can identify what your city is and I like the idea of saying, I have, these are my trigger cities. These are that this is, these are the genres trigger cities. This is this type of artist trigger cities. Then you can take that and expand that out and say, okay, so I know Manchester works for me. What is it about Manchester that works for me? And then figure out what type of cities mirror that. Maybe in the way they repeat listen, maybe in the type of playlists they listen to, maybe in the type of TV shows they watch, maybe in the type of um, you know, radio support you might get. What other cities actually can work for me? And then you can expand that out. And then you can work and find, identify your people in those areas that can be doing the legwork, you know, the ground level work to help you do the same thing you did in Manchester, do that same thing in Seoul, and then do that same thing in Australia, and then do that same thing in Canada. Once you figure those things out, that's why I think you can really make the progress. But it starts off with understanding your artist or understanding yourself, if you're the artist in this question, and then understanding these territories and then understanding what your goals truly are. Because if your goals are just streams, I, I really hope you get a really good placement on New Music Friday. But other than that, you have to think about a strategic, larger scale. What does your career trajectory look like? And just having a number one song on the Spotify chart does not, does not mean you're a superstar. Right, right. Um, have you managed anyone? Uh, any artists? No, I haven't managed any okay. artists, no. <laughs> no, because I'm just curious. I, just, I feel like a lot of the things you're saying is could be super, super useful to, to oh, a lot yeah, of totally. uh, young, budding artists. Oh, yeah. So there's that, Ooh, because you. you're already a very, very busy uh, person. But you know, in case Jason, you did you just offer her a, a job as your manager? <laughs> I, don't have any, I, I have no artists stable which to offer your services to, but uh, I'm sure there are some artists who maybe might hear this and might hit you up afterwards. I'll have to read my contract, see if I'm allowed to do this. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll yeah. talk. <laughs> One thing I thought of while you were talking is this idea of, you know, at least the old school traditional idea of like, oh, I'm an artist in X country. I'm going to make it to L.A. or New York or London um, to oh, make it. So have you seen by any chance artists, you know, in whatever you come across, doesn't have to be particularly for the company that you work for now or any other company you've worked for, that it's almost like there's a reverse um, kind of trend uh, where maybe they're artists who are from some of those kind of traditionally like entertainment, you know, centers, but then moving to uh, mm -hmm. a different, uh, what a lot of us call quote unquote emerging markets um, to develop further as artists. Have you seen that at all? I'm just, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so my first experience with that is not, it's not even like an industry thing, but um, do you know the story of the Lumineers? So the Lumineers have a line in one of their songs in their first album that goes, New York has lied to me, I needed the truth. They left New York City, and I think they went to Colorado because New York City just was not working for them. Yeah. So they went from the music the music hub, you know, the music capital of the U.S., you know, that, you know, in L.A., and they went to, like, essentially the Midwest, right? Um, and from there, they became huge. 
you don't have to be in New York. You don't have to be in LA to become a, you know, to become a superstar or even just to get to whatever goal you're trying to get to. I wouldn't say I've seen people like I still on a regular basis get those. Okay, cool. So now that we're doing well in whatever country, should we go to the U.S.? Usually the answer is no. Um, there's reasons why you might want to go to the U.S. Definitely, I think it's good to start getting your name out there and, you know, do the radio um, shows, things like that. But the U.S. is a really big market. Not only is the U.S. a really big market, it's really expensive to do marketing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It might not, unless you have a good strategy and a good goals and good ideas, this might not be worth your time to start off in the U.S. Um, when I was working in Sweden, I worked really closely with our export team. And that was, the goal was to get that, the Swedish artists, let Nordic artists, at a larger scale. And a lot of times what we'd hear from radio or what we'd hear from DSPs is what's happening in their home market. Mm. So they wanted to understand, they wanted to know if there was a story actually happening in Sweden before they tried to get them on German radio. Because if their local, if their local, you know, Swedes and their local Norwegians did not care about the artist, why should Germany care about the artist? There's already a step removed from the entire story at that point. Yeah. So that's something to really keep in mind. I must say it always has to be that way. I've definitely seen it work where people just, it didn't work in their home market and that's, you know, that's the way it was. But something to keep in mind is that people are going to say, if your, your fellow, you know, your fellow citizens don't, like you why am i going to try to push you onto my italians for example so i think from that perspective it's really important to understand your home market and even if you just not doesn't work in your home market you need to understand why it doesn't work in your home market what it is what is it about your home market that doesn't work mm. and if you can take that and figure it out and then identify markets where it could work or markets that you do strive in that's a better way to do it it doesn't necessarily have to be the us or the uk or australia there could be there could be other places where it really works for you, um, and even if you have language barriers, if you think about you know the Latin explosion, like not everyone knows Spanish and it still has worked out. So yeah. there's some ways that you can make it work, but you have to figure out why it's not working your market before you try to go to a bunch of other people's markets and sell something that your market didn't want. For example, should we pivot to dating? Go for it, Rex. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So Jason dug up this article that you wrote about online dating for Elite Daily. Can you talk a little bit about what that was about and maybe how music business, if at all, is like dating or if there's a music business equivalent? So um, first of all, I'll say I, I am actually married now, which is pretty impressive if you actually read that article. <laughs> um, so basically, the concept of the article is... It's a numbers game, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> I did a lot of online dating and I went on a lot of dates. So I'm talking like four or five dates a week. Wow. And I did this because I did not date in high school and I did not date in college because statistically speaking, the chance of me marrying someone I met in high school or in college was really low. So it didn't make logical sense for me to actually date at that time. Right. Which in hindsight, once I got to a 21-year-old adult person living on my own, not having dated much at all, um, made things a bit of a challenge. So I was like, okay, well, I need to catch up with everybody else. So I started going on a live dates. I didn't just meet these people online. I met them in person, at parties, at events, at bars, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it was really just like the idea of if I meet the right number of, of guys, statistically speaking, eventually I would have met 
a large enough sample size of people <laughs> that the chance of me finding the right person was really high. I mean, yeah. So I figured eventually oh, I could just stop God. because I met, like, <laughs> if you think about all the people that lived in Baltimore, <laughs> if you think about all the people that lived in Baltimore, 600,000 people, right? So if I got, like, you know, 1% of that population, chances are I've gotten a good enough sample size. Um, I don't know how this has to do with the music, but obviously you can see how my data mind works because yeah, yeah. Well, this made a lot of sense yeah. to me. And I discovered, as I said it to other people, it sounds absolutely insane. Um, but for me, it made complete and total sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I think that's a really good point of like, you know, data, it seems to be relegated to a lot of, you know, our minds as something that belongs in a math book. And it's not applicable mm -hmm. to a lot of the things that we don't normally associate um, numbers yeah. with or statistics or anything like that. So um, so one of the points that, uh, that really got me when I read it was for the guys that eventually stopped answering messages, you asked for feedback, <laughs> which I thought was the most amazing Again. thing ever. <laughs> And uh, again, I reiterate somehow I am married now. Um, <laughs> and then, no, here we go for the listeners who are listening. She got a 100% response rate from all of those you know, feedback true. requests. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I saw that as like a very unconventional yet practical way of like improving your process, um, you know, even if yep. this process was dating. Um, but, you know, to, to bring it back to this world of, of music data, do you are there any kind of like maybe unexpected habits or unexpected ways to take advantage of the data besides maybe, you know, some of the more obvious things? Yeah, I mean, so essentially that was kind of my own test and learn campaign, uh, as the uh, people in the marketing business would say, because every time I approached a situation, if I thought it went well and it didn't, I wanted to kind of get the feedback. So I kind of had, essentially I had a hypothesis of this went well, I will see this person again. And if that was not the case, I wanted to understand what had happened to kind of change the flow process to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so when applying that to data as a whole, um, one thing I found, and it kind of goes back to your earlier statement, is that I think because data is newer in the music industry, data kind of gets siloed into, this is the data person. The person that does the data will do the data. Right. The person that does the marketing will do the marketing. The yeah. person that does the business development will do the business development. I work for startups um, as a consultant, and I've worked at startups. And from the startup world, it's going to completely different. In the startup world, everybody understands data. Everyone's expected to know data. Everyone's expected to yeah. be able to ap apply data into their everyday work. Not everyone is advanced. Not everyone can code in Python. Not everyone can use SQL, but everyone can at least understand trend lines, understand the general principles of what's happening in data. Um, in the music industry, I, I find a lot of times they're like, okay, so we're hiring a marketing person. And they're like, okay, cool. We're also going to hire an analyst. And those two people are mutually exclusive from one another. That makes things a little bit challenging sometimes because you run into situations where everything gets everything gets a bit backed up because if the marketing person has to wait for the data person to do something, then the marketing person can't do their job as much as well or as fast as they want to do it. Now, if the marketing person had a bit of data um, background, they be, might be able to do a lot of these steps before they have to go to the data person. Or even better, that data person doesn't have to exist because everyone is familiar and able to do all of these different data aspects of their job, basically. So from my perspective, data... Um, 
data should be involved in everything. And really data is involved in everything. It's just, are you using the right data and are you asking the right questions? So when it comes to my dating experience, when at the end of it, I just, you know, if things didn't come out the way I wanted to, I asked different questions. Uh, I have a, one of my favorite quotes is from a small pop punk band called Cartel. Mm-hmm. They said, if you're not getting answers, ask better questions. Um, and I've always loved that. And in the music industry or in, biz- in data in general, I always love when people come to me with a question, not come to me with a piece of data they want. So I prefer you to come to me and say, hey, we want to understand what the new listeners of this artist looks like. Not, hey, can you get me how many streams we had on release radar? I understand why you're asking how many streams we had on release radar, but I don't think it's truly asking, it's truly answering the question that you want to know about. So if we can start approaching things from a, question approach and start figuring out how we can apply quantitative metrics or even qualitative metrics to it, then we can kind of progress to asking the right questions. You know, when someone does approach you with a question instead of like a, a, a you know, a metric of, of some sort, where do you think data itself really belongs in a creative business like music? Yeah, I mean, so this at this point right now, this is wholly only my opinion. But the idea of incorporating data into AI music terrifies me. (laughs) I just, I don't know if I want to live in a future where everyone's listening to AI created music. Now, I, this could be a short-sighted viewpoint in my head where 20 years from now, there could be fantastic hits all made like all made from a computer that is not an area i have any interest in i have no desire at all to make artificial intelligence music i have to say that's not part of my process um that's not an area i would ever actually want to go into um i understand why people do i understand there's lots of companies right now getting a lot of vc money to do it so more power to them it's just not a space that i i find at all interesting um for me, I would say it's not my it's not my job to tell an artist what to do. Um, it's not my job to tell them, you know, oh, this is where the hook should go or this is where this should go. I don't even particularly like it um, to look at, for instance, as a major label, we get a lot of data from the DSPs. And so I can tell you at what point in a song people are skipping the song. But I wouldn't say just because people are skipping the song, you should cut down your introduction. You may want to cut down the introduction if I tell you that that's happening, but I wouldn't say you should definitely cut down your introduction because that's your that's your creativity. That is what you're doing as an artist. And that is all you. I'm more happy. I'm happy to take whatever song you give me as it is. And we can go from there rather than incorporating data into the actual music creation process. Right. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the actual creation production. That's not a space that I'm interested in. I can see, I could tell you how you can get into that space and what you could, what might want to do, what you might want to look at. It's just not a space that like, I don't, I don't want to live in that world really um but for everything else i think data has a place in everything else um working in the music industry um and working in data i have worked on so many different projects across the different different industries um or different um departments so you know i've worked with finance to do predictive modeling to understand how much money we should pay an artist for their advance, for example. Um, I've worked with the legal teams to understand what type of data we should be requesting from our DSPs. Um, I've worked with the commercial team to understand what our market share is and how, or and more importantly, not just what our market share is, but what affects our market share. So I've worked with our commercial team to understand 
is there a certain type of music or the cre- uh, or the existence of a certain type of music in our repertoire that actually improves our market share, for example? Is there a certain certain genre that we have a bigger monopoly on that allows us to increase our market share? Um, I've worked with uh, I've worked with artists directly, and I've talked to them, like I mentioned, about hey, we want to sell out an arena, or I really like the progression of this artist. What did that progression look like from when they started to now? Um, I've worked with the marketing team, so we can say, hey, what's the target audience for this artist? You know, how do we reach those people on different social media sites or on advertising? How do we confirm that we actually reach those people, and how do we adjust? start marketing throughout the you know throughout the process to make sure that we're actually reaching those people you know i've worked on projects where we're looking at the full marketing mix so tv radio shazam streaming you know social media ads organic social media bringing that all together to understand hey what's actually happening here what things affect other things how often how does radio like traditional radio affect streams so there's so many areas and there's so many aspects of the music industry that could have data in it. And if you think about it, um, in the music industry as it is now, in the traditional music industry talking about labels and licensing, probably for every 50 or 40 marketing people you have, you probably have one person that specializes in data. We're literally usually only cracking the surface of what could actually be done. And especially if you look at it from the other perspective of the DSPs, well, the DSPs, those numbers are almost entirely flipped. We have all this opportunity and we have the artists and we have the creatives and we have all of this wealth of content and artistry. And there's so much we can do with it and so much data that we can use to incorporate and enhance and make better. And But sometimes it feels like it's not all being used because we have an old school mindset a lot of times that is like, oh yeah, we need more A&R people. We need more marketing people. I'm not saying we don't need them. My MBA is in marketing. I love marketing, but it's more of an idea of how do we balance that out? If data is important, how do we balance that out and give data as prevalent of a role, as prevalent as a spot, as prevalent as a position in the boardrooms as with everything else that we tend to prioritize within the music industry? I'm convinced. I'm convinced too. So, you know, that's really it, uh, Christine. Uh, we just want to thank you so much for uh, chatting with us today. Yeah, seriously. Thank you. Howl Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Special thanks to Christine Osazua. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you haven't downloaded 6ML, our global music industry data report, you can find it all across our socials and in our show notes. That's it for Season 2, Episode 2 of How Music Charts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you, Christine. Awesome. Bye, Christine. Thanks, guys. I'm going to hang up on all these different places that you've had me log into. <laughs> <laughs>